Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Ted Gibson, who is Professor of Cognitive Sciences at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Professor Gibson's research examines how language is processed and how language processing, processing constrains language structure. Welcome, Ted. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with one of your papers uh, entitled How Efficiency Shapes Human Language. Uh, in which you say cognitive science applies diverse tools and perspectives to study human language. Recently, an exciting body of work has examined linguistic phenomena through the lens of efficiency in usage. Uh, what otherwise puzzling features of language find explanation in formal, ac- formal accounts and how language might be optimized for communication and learning. This is a, a very interesting area for me. Um, I know nothing about languages per se, but uh, involved a little bit of computer languages. And um, often wondered, um, you know, and I grew up in South India with a, with a different, completely different language when I was growing up and then came to the US, uh, picked up English. Uh, and these languages are completely different. And uh, the complexity um, it's, it's also quite different. So I often wondered how language evolved. Just to set the, the context, Ted, how many languages do you have? Something like 6,000 worldwide? Uh, there, depending on how you count, uh, different typologists will say that something between six to 7,000 different languages. It's hard to say what counts as a language exactly, um, but yeah. uh, because there's a lot of closely related dialects, languages, which might be counted as languages or might not be counted as separate languages. But there's on the order of seven, six, seven thousand uh, from at least two hundred, well, 150 to 200 distinct families where we across those families, we see no connections. There's no historical connection whatsoever uh, between any of those. Of course, there must be there probably is some connection between those, but it's just further back than we can measure. Uh, so there's like there's no measurable connection between any of them. There's no historical connection between those 150, 200, and there's no measurable 
uh, connection in terms of the words that they currently use or the forms they currently use, uh, which are related at all. So, so there's a lot of variability around the world's languages. Uh, but um, so, so 200 or so sort of templates uh, that uh, humans seem to have used to, to construct these. But if we, if we look at it mathematically, do we find structural, any sort of structural similarities at all, or they, they look completely different? Well, they, uh, first of all, when I say there's around 200 of these families, we keep in mind that one of those families is something called Indo-European. And so the languages that, that um, within that family, we just understand how they're all connected more historically. And so those include languages like probably your native languages. I don't know if that's Hindi or if it's, uh, what, what is your native language? Is it? Uh, uh, so my, mine is a Dravidian uh -huh. uh, language called uh, Malayalam, uh -huh. which was is a combination of Sanskrit and Tamil. And, and Sanskrit, I think, uh, would be in the Indo-European right. uh, lineage there. I think Sanskrit and German share a lot of commonality. Uh -huh. I think. Uh -huh. So there's, but but I'm just the the my. My point was going to be that uh, even though they may be in the same family, there's a, an enormous amount of variability within a, within a single family. So Indo-European includes Hindi, includes uh, um, I get well, it obviously includes all the Germanic uh, you know, languages, including German, and 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 includes the Romance languages. It includes you know includes an enormous variability in there. And there's like uh, I don't know how many Indo-European languages there are, but on the order of a hundred. And so, and they're very, uh, you know, th those are related related languages at some level, um, and you know, some are closer than others. So, of course, you know, languages like Spanish and Portuguese are pretty close, and English and German are actually reasonably close, and German and Dutch are even closer. Um, but uh, you know, uh, it seems like um, the the languages that are actually in mainland India are kind of a little further away, but they're still within the same family. And even so, there's uh, so there's a few thousand. Uh, languages all around the world, and from around you know around 200 of these of these you know families, which holds a lot of variability. Now, you know, your question was, are they all arbitrarily different? Um, the answer is, you know, almost certainly no. There's a lot of similarities in certain ways across uh, across languages, and we've been explore. My group has been exploring that, and many people actually now, many researchers in the last 15 years, 10, 15 years, have been exploring that the similarity across languages through the lens of information theory. Um, and so we look at, um, well, first of all, I should say what language is. You know, maybe, maybe it might help to talk about what human languages are. First of all, there's a, a, when you learn a new language, you have to learn a bunch of sounds. Uh, those are called, yeah. the so-called phonemes of a language. Um, and you have to then learn how to put those, phoneme, those phonemes together to make things like words. Actually, we, we prefer to call them morphemes in uh, linguistics, but let's just think of those as words because it's sort of easiest in English because words and morphemes are almost the same in English. Um, they're just sort of the minimal units which have meaning. So the, the word cat is the minimal way to talk about something in the world that, that a thing, a cat, which has three little pieces, the k, the a, and the t. You can think of it as the letters, but it's not, you know, the spelling um, sound correspondence isn't exactly perfect in English, but it's not terrible. Um, and uh, and there's no way that the meaning of cat comes from the meaning of k from the, from, plus the meaning of a plus the meaning of t. It's pretty independent of those things. I, I, it's not entirely independent. There is some variability. So there's some sounds 
which tend to go with some meanings a little bit more, but it's a very small correlation. So most of the, mostly that's just completely independent. And so we're looking at, and in, in um, so then we've got this, the sounds of the world and, and then world's languages, and then you have these l words in a, in a uh, world's language. And then you have how you put those words together. And that's the so-called yeah. syntax of the world's languages. And when I, when I say syntax, what I mean is just any compositionality of how you put together those basic units, the, the morphemes or the words, and you form something bigger. And so whenever you put two things together, there's a form, how you put them together. So I say the cat, I put the together with cat, and now I'm talking about, um, I guess, a particular cat in the context. Um, and then uh, and then there's a meaning associated with that. And for any of these forms, there's a form meaning correspondence. And so there, uh, so for any syntax, there's a meaning associated with how you put that those two together. And and we look for, and me and other people, lots of other people around, and researchers in um, psychology, computer science, and linguistics programs are trying to understand uh, how similar and how different languages are in terms of the words that they have and the combinations of words that they have. And there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap, it turns out. There's a lot of ways in which all languages are the same. Um, and yeah. I there probably is actually a lot in the at the sound base as well. Uh, I, I just don't happen to work on that. And so that's the uh, so I happen to work on the meaning parts more than the sound bits. And so there are yeah. generalizations across the world's languages also in terms of the kinds of um, sounds that tend to occur in human languages, but I'm, you know, that's not my expertise. The other other parts, the meaning things, are the things my I'm, I have more expert expertise. So, 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 do we have a crisp definition of language? That so, you know, in computer languages, high level languages are used to essentially let humans create an assembly level instruction set for the computer. So, you know, it's sort of a, a translator. Um, do we have a crisp definition? What do we mean by human language? Well, a human language is just a human com communication system. That's it. And so, uh, yeah. you know, so whatever it is I, that, that humans use to communicate with other humans, that is, that is their language. And that may, um, that doesn't have to be auditory. So there are uh, sign languages for people that are deaf. Uh, and so they have, like, it may, may take a very different form. And that becomes kind of interesting when um, these sign languages are just evolving. And uh, because maybe, maybe uh, kids of, it turns out that some small proportion of hearing parents give birth to deaf children and Deaf, and they have to somehow communicate, and so they'll they may sort of invent a uh, a sign language uh, uh, among themselves, the child and the parents, in order to communicate. So that's probably a very rudimentary language still, because there's so, there's a there's a uh, a set of words in that dictionary, whatever that may, it may be very simple, maybe very simplified. As, these are called sort of home sign uh, languages. Uh, and they, uh, and because the parents may not, you know, have any way of communicating with their kid auditorily, so they can't teach them, say, English. If I'm, if, you know, me and my partner have a child and the child is deaf, we can't use English to communicate with them. So then we have to somehow make up our own communication system. And that's a language. It's just a, um, probably less 
powerful language in that it may, it may not be as easy to express everything that we want to express because we have to invent it ourselves to do that. But that's still a language. Um, uh, and yeah. so we, you know, I guess in, in for from our purposes, we're just interested in any naturally evolving human language of any kind and trying to understand what the commonalities of those are for the human for human communication. I mean, I'm taking that as a given in some ways, because that's kind of the most obvious thing to think about what human language might be for. Why do we have human language? The most obvious thing to say, you know, it's easy to say that to a computer scientist is, I'm, I'm a computer scientist myself, is like that seems to be the obvious thing that it might be for, is for talking to someone else. Um, that's not the only um, idea as to where what, what the sort of value of a human language might be. So. The famous linguist uh, Noam Chomsky has hy hypothesized that language evolved in, in order to think as opposed to in order to communicate with others. And, and those might be related in some sense. So maybe it's like kind of talk to yourself as opposed to uh, talk to someone else. But um, those aren't the same idea. And I, I, the, the, I think the simplest a very simple hypothesis to start with is maybe it's for talking to others to communicate with others yeah so communication is a is a big aspect um yeah, i think language as a as a thinking vehicle is actually quite interesting would we say animals have language or it doesn't yeah sure the they do yes they do it's just a simplified communication system so any yes absolutely any, you know, the, the, the definition so, of a, you know, obviously human language is just languages that humans use. And then an animal language is an animal communication system is one that humans use, that, that animals use, whatever the species is to communicate among themselves. They're going to be simplified. They're going to be much more simple than human languages. They, because they, they won't be able yeah. to express the same uh, range of concepts that humans can express, but they can certainly you know, different kinds of monkeys have different kinds of calls depending on to express to each other. Uh, so there are, you know, just distress calls versus food calls to tell, you know, tell their um, members of their community, uh, you know, different information that's important to them. But they, you know, they can't do, you know, a claim in the literature has been that, you know, human languages may be different from animal communication systems and that human languages are compositional so that you can put together two uh, separate um, morphemes, words, and make a more complex meaning, which doesn't happen very much in the animal communication world. Um, that's not strictly true. I mean, even bees have a complicated dance that they do to explain to other bees where to find uh, um, flowers that are uh, you, you know useful for them, you know to for to making their honey and uh, um, and so they do a complicated dance which is uh, clearly compositional it tells how far away what what direction and and um, how far away the uh, the the flowers are and so uh, that is compositional but it's very narrow so it's it's actually pretty hard to come up with a a definition of the kinds of things that a human language can do that a non-human language can't do. I think really it just comes down to there's just much more, whatever there's in any human animal communication system, there's just much more of it in uh, the a human system. There's a, another claim that's out there is due to Noam Chomsky is that maybe human languages are the ones that are recursive. 
they're not just compositional, but they can they make rules that call themselves, and so you can get arbitrarily long and um, um, single, basically sentences, single utterances. That's a claim from Chomsky, which is actually it's unclear what he meant when he said that, and so that that's been a, a source of uh, discussion in our uh, in the linguistics literature for the last twenty years. So it's like he wrote a paper in two thousand and two, which um, people argue about ever since. And it's not really clear what he meant actually by that by the word recursion in that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting. So 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 I want to just push on this idea of simplicity. So you know you could look at it so, sort of the ability of a language to. Um, to provide information, perhaps the breadth of ideas, breadth of information, the more it can do, the more complex it's going to be. In general, do we find languages uh, uh, getting more complex? Uh, you know, if there's an evolution of a single language, let's say English, um, do you think it's getting more complex or is it getting uh, more, more simple over time? Um, that's a really interesting question and the answer is we don't know but let's 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 put some definitions out there so what what i mean by complexity when i say if i were to say that a language is more complicated say one than one than another all i would mean by that it's very simple would be that it would have uh, more words and more rules so uh and and uh yeah. maybe a little more subtle than that okay so um, that's like a simple, simple definition. So th that that so English, a, a typical English speaker, um, a literate English speaker in the United States, for example, one who went to college, will have a vocabulary of something like fifty thousand different lexical items, different words. Um, it, it sounds like a lot. It actually is quite a lot, <laughs> and um, a lot of that actually comes from reading. So maybe when a, a you know, a child of 10 is around 10, they have a much smaller vocabulary, but from a lot of reading over the following years, they build a vocabulary of something like 50,000 or maybe even 100,000 different lexical items. It's actually not too hard to, it seems like an awful lot, but that's how many words is, there's many, many more words than that in a big dictionary, in a big Oxford um, English dictionary. There are many words, there's hundreds of thousands of words in there. And many, you know, you may know many of those people who are very literate, who read a lot, will know a lot of those. And they're very, but the, even though there are so many, I should point out there's a there's a probability distribution over those words. And so they vary on the order of at least six orders of magnitude, meaning the most common word will be, uh, what is that, you know, 100 million more more times more common than the least frequent word, at least that. So, so, so the distribution, is very probabilistic such that the words that we typically use are extremely frequent. And the words that we, we may know lots and lots and lots of words in this so-called tail, the long tail of the distribution, but there's, and there's just, you know, maybe tens of thousands of those, but there's, they hardly ever get used. So, um, and that's, and so that'll be true across people, no matter what the distribution is, you know, that, that there's, a, there's a, there's a distribution like that in everyone's dictionary. It, the extent of the tail will be the thing that's var varying across people. How many low frequency words do you know, as opposed to the most common ones everyone will know. And so, you know, things down to, 
you know, those the things that only occur, you know, once in a million, most people will know, almost everyone will know. But the ones that occur once every hundred million are gonna be very variable. And, and the same thing is true for the rules, okay, for the syntactic rules, the way that we put things together, there's gonna be ways to, that we that people talk which or write, um, which is more and less frequent than others. I mean, that may, I'm not actually sure about the distribution of that, whether it's, um, if it's ex if it's identical in in shape to the to the word one, the word one's easy to study because um, words or morphemes are we we write these things down and we can find them in big texts. And but the but the rules of how you put them together, what the syntactic rules are, becomes theoretically uh, loaded. And so different different theories do different things for how they decide to put things together. And so that is not so easy. That's why it's a little hard to know exactly how many ways there are to put things together because then we have to make a decision for every one of those as to like some some theorist has to decide what the simplest or if that's how we're going to decide what's the simplest way to do all that but there's going to be tens of thousands of those that we know also maybe something on that order maybe on the order of uh, not millions probably but tens tens of thousands i think that's what we kind of think there and so then your question is yeah. are there <laughs> are there yeah. you know are there languages with more words and few and or uh, and fewer words and our languages with more syntactic rules and fewer syntactic rules and um i mean sort of yes uh but uh then the question really becomes you know do the typical speakers in each one of those languages what do they know in each one of those and and we do, we just don't know the answer to that and frankly it's been politically you know, it's not a that that's kind of a dangerous. You're you're heading into dangerous territory there if you happen to say that some language is simpler or more complicated than some others. There's a there's a sort of a mantra in anthropology that no no culture, no language is more simple or more difficult that you know more complicated than any other. And and that's kind of a you know. So we don't want to you know we don't want to we've got to be careful there about saying that some groups of people if they speak some language are simpler than others depending on what that may what, what kinds of um inferences other people may make about what that may mean and so that so that it's kind of a touchy subject for for some people um and so we uh that's not something that's been heavily explored you know, to, to be to be frank it's all, but also because it's hard it's actually kind of a hard question to explore because of the theoretical loadedness of finding out what the 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 grammar is in any one of those languages exactly yeah i was i was looking at not looking at cross-sectionally but longitudinally so mm -hmm. i have noticed this phenomenon uh ted that you know the place i grew up in in india you know last 30 years uh i visit that place maybe once every two years or so every time i go I feel like, and, and this is a phenomenon I have been noticing for, you know, 20, 25 years now, the number of words that are used in conversation seem to decline with time. Uh, and so the, the number of words that people used to use 25 years ago, um, the, the, the total number is substantially more than what they currently do. In other words, you could look at it two ways. You could say they're able to communicate with less words and and, and tremendously more context uh, in the sense that, you know, a word is basically becoming a stand-in for 15 different ideas now, and you would only know it 
if you know the context. Um, and, and I don't know this phenomenon is, you know, sort of universal if you look at other languages, but I do notice it in, in this specific you know, I, instance. Um, I'm not aware of any, uh, well, first of all, I'm not aware of any longitudinal sort of study of language use, which shows that the, that usage of, of, of a, of a volume of words is, changing in some interesting way. And so you're saying that it's going down over some period here. Um, you know, is it possible that there may be other words that, I don't know, I, I mean, that's a a um, sort of a, a common uh, complaint that I hate to tell you this, that sort of older people say about younger people that they don't, they talk more simply than we used to. And it's really just, they usually it's the case that, that it's just different, that things are changing and yeah, things are yeah. changing. Maybe the syntax has changed a little bit in some interesting way. And the 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 words they use may be slightly different, but it's not clear that it's actually any more complicated or simple than uh, than what was going on, uh, you know, whatever at, at any time frame. I'm so uh, there ha I, I'm not familiar with any study which has shown that that a set of words gets uh, that they language the, the set of words that's being used is shrinking over time in any population. Um, you know, how would you do that now with, how would you study that? One way to study that would be nowadays would be with uh, texting, for instance, <laughs> I mean, because it provides enormous recorded databases basically of how people communicate with one another, but maybe, uh, I mean, but at least it would give you two time points and you give you, you know, a point from 10 years ago to now and you could see how the, you know, the usage changes over that period. The problem with, um, you know, your observation, if it's a true observation is how do you, you know, you need some way of naturally measuring that over all, over all this period. And so then you'd need at least then recorded conversations or something which would have to be uh, transcribed, you know, transcription isn't so hard these days. We can do a lot of that kind of automatically, but you'd have to have sort of natural conversations um, uh, automatically transcribed and then and then evaluated. And, and you know, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. It may very well happen. I, you know, I may go the other direction sometimes, and we, we may not know why uh, why these things uh, happen yet. So I, I'm not familiar with you know longitudinal. You know, sh you know, shrinking of vocabulary in a population as a as a thing that happens typically. Um, yeah, I wasn't suggesting it's getting simpler. Um, so that that frequency distribution that you talked about, um, you know, there, there seems to be a trend toward the the higher frequency words to be even higher frequency over time, and lower frequency words. Uh, to be even lower frequency over time. The implication of that is to communicate the same amount of information, you have to, you have to use a mm -hmm. lot more context uh, because, you, you know, you're basically using the same words over and over again in different contexts, which would imply that for somebody to pick up the language now, it's really, really complex. <laughs> you know, it, it's, uh, you, you have to, you, it's not just studying language, it's studying uh, culture, really, before you can pick yeah, up Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I again, I'm not, you know, even if that's your, if it's a different claim, I agree, but I'm not, you know, I'm not aware of any longitudinal study of that, which is a little harder to study, right? So that's, um, you're, there what you're saying is that we're going to, 
the, the claim is that we have this, you know, some same same set of words. Say the word set of words doesn't change, but the you but the meanings of the words. Some of these high frequency words get used in more different meaning. So basically, you're in, there's invention right. Right. of meanings associated with high frequency words. You know, there's some um, there's a, there's a maybe a, a useful a use a, you know a usefulness for doing that that we don't have to learn a new form. I can just keep using the same form. But you're right. There's a complexity associated with that, which is now I have to have multiple meanings associated more more multiple meanings associated with the same form. I, I should just point out that. You know, all languages have that, uh, have some some form of that. So in, you know, in English, the high frequency words do tend to be more ambiguous. There's a lot of um, so-called homophony and and um, synonymy in. Uh, well, I guess homophony here is the most important thing here. Polysemy, polysemy and and um, homophony are the are the. I mean, the, these are technical terms. One of them is just that if you um, I have two, I have multiple meanings associated with the same string. And so, you know, a word like two in English can mean either the number two, T-W-O, we write it differently, but in, you know, this is the, the, the right venue for transmitting it. You know, it sounds the same as if, if it's a preposition I, as well. So I, I gave a book to Mary, they, they pronounced the same way, kind of. Um, and then there's also this word, you know, T-O-O we write, which is, means also, and, and, and there's actually another to which is an inflection marker, which is a really different kind of a function word than the preposition. So I gave a book to Mary as one. I also I, you know, I want to sleep is a different. Those don't. Those are actually different forms, different morphemes. They just look the same, sound the same, in, in English. And so in English is not different from any other language. All languages are like this. That very high frequency short forms tend to be ambiguous and have a bunch of different meanings. And then there's also this thing called uh, polysemy, where very closely related words um, uh, have the same form. So a word like cap can mean, uh, you know, a, something I wear in my head. It also can mean the top of a pen. You know, those, close, those are kind of closely related, uh, but they're not exactly the same meaning. And, uh, and, and again, very short, um, frequent words tend to have more of those. And so maybe what you're saying, that, that, that's true in all human languages. I mean, we think we, we, that, that, that's been explored in, a, in an around, I don't know, 15 so far. And, and that's, uh, there's, a, there's a strong relationship between there. It's true in all these, those languages such, well, we know that homophony, these things exist in all languages, mm -hmm. but then there's an interesting observation that it tends to occur more in the shorter, more frequent words. Uh, there's a relationship between so that's one of these generalizations. Right. There's a there's you asked me at the very beginning, you know, what what are things that are true across all human languages? Well, one of them is an observation due to this guy Zipf. He's a linguist from Harvard from the 30s and 40s. He's a and he observed that high frequency words in every language tend to be short, and that's true in every human language. And um, and here we can uh, say something a little bit more than that. We can say that the frequent the very frequent short things also tend to be more ambiguous than the longer things. And these are, that's a neat generalization, which, um, you know, probably is helpful in in communication. <laughs> so in, in that you're kind of pointing out, your observation there is that uh, um, you need, if you get a word like say two, two is a nice example in English, you need the context to know how to interpret that. But, um, um, and it, it actually, but it helps, 
maybe it helps learners here, it helps speakers um, to, to not have to say so much, not have to hear so much if I can use the short, if I can, if I can basically say less um, to get across the same point. So I can reuse those short things over and over again that makes it easier for me as a speaker, as a lazy person. Um, I think of myself and maybe all humans as sort of inherently lazy and in that I'm trying to, not really lazy, but I'm trying to optimize, make things easy um, so I can do more maybe with the rest of my time in some way. And so that the language may be like that. Um, so, yeah. so that's what you talk about in the paper too. So you call mm -hmm. it communicative efficiency. Um, and there are different uh, aspects of efficiency, right? Um, obviously that the shorter words might be easier. Um, and I was wondering, Ted, uh, it might be easier to say uh, but do we have any measure of sort of the cognitive cost in any way uh, to words? Is it is it is it so you're like the, so when we're talking about cost? just to be clear here clear here you mean um, there's like in any yeah. language uh, utterance experience there's me this producer and then there's you the listener so there's a so you're talking about on the listener side then or the the the, the comprehender say if it's writing. If, you know, whatever the comprehension production side, there's me, there's something that's easy for me to say, um, and there's something that's easy for me to read or or to to hear, to understand. And so are you talking about um, how cognitive cost? Because there's yeah. a cognitive cost to production, both, right? and there's a cognitive cost to comprehension. And so both of those are relevant, presumably, in, in, in efficiency and in deciding what makes something easy in some sense to to deal with as in a communication system so i i i, I sort of as interpret you as saying are you asking is there a, a cognitive cost in understanding these things is that right no i would say both right so if i am if yeah. i am the sender of information um it is futile for me to just optimize cognitive cognitive costs on my end because i might end up repeating right. it Absolutely, that's thinking, right. So you you need I'm something to be, to, uh, right, right. You know, it's you know. So the the extreme case of easy for the speaker is just having one word for everything. Yeah. You know, so if I just say, uh, 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 it's super easy for me to say that, but there's no communication happening because <laughs> there's no way to. It's very very difficult. Maybe there's some, maybe there's something about the length or something about how I'm saying those things that is corresponding to the. The meanings in some way or other, but it's so difficult to decode that um, it's not it's not a very good communication system. So we need it's helpful to have distinguishable sounds in our communication system. It's helpful to have distinguishable words in our communication system. Um, and so that's I may mean, think that's the, the extreme case of what what you were saying there. So yes, of course we need to have it. But but what what was your question then? If it wasn't a, a cognitive cost, I I didn't understand what that. Um, yeah, so the, you use some parameters in the in the paper, such as word length, uh, association, ambiguity, and so on. Um, and this is something that you can measure uh, at the word level or at the syntax level. I was I was wondering. I don't think this has been done. I was just wondering if we have any sort of neuroscience uh, measurement. Um, you know, suppose I have a hypothesis that says, you know, shorter words uh, and shorter length between associated words is is easier, is simpler. 
um, what I was asking was, do we have any neuroscience measurement that says it's actually less cognitively costly um, to produce kind of. as well? So neural is uh, pushing it, yeah. but certainly behavioral. So in behavioral measures, there's a bunch of different behavioral measures one one can use to evaluate things like cognitive cost. So and and those could be either. Uh, I mean, most of those are in comprehension. So the so so just for instance, there's like the 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 most simple simple version is you can just ask people. So ask people, you know, not one person, but ask a bunch of people to do ratings of how complicated they think things are. So how easy they are, how easy this is like a, the standard method actually in linguistics is what we're called acceptability measures. So in the field of syntax and semantics, people use this measurement, which is just basically asking sort of random speakers of a language whether this is a possible string or not, and, and with, with this with this a, 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 with this meaning. And so that's an acceptability judgment, and and, and you can you know fine tune that so it's not just is it you know thumbs up thumbs down good or bad, just you know how good is it on a scale of whatever very terrible to really great. And then you can get a cognitive measure there uh, of like of, a, of an utterance or of a word or anything you want. Okay, so that's a that's a very simple me measure. Then we can correlate that, for for instance, with in say reading. It's harder in listening, but in reading we can get a measure of how complicated a sentence is in two measures. Basically, how fast you read that sentence and how well you answer comprehension questions about yeah. that sentence. And so if there's if you know you have to answer comprehension questions about something, then you read it carefully, relatively carefully, depending on what the questions are. If you've ever done any kind of standardized tests, you know that depending on what the questions are, you read you know different levels of detail to try to understand what it is you're being uh, tested on at the end. But say you're being tested pretty carefully about the content of, of, of sentences, then people will read it at whatever rate that is for themselves. And that rate will change depending on the complexity of the sentence. So people will read slower at for com more complicated parts of sentences, for example. Um, it's a very rough measure, frankly, because there's a, um, it's, it's a, it's a loose relationship between the reading time and, um, and the complexity. I think actually, even though the other, the other measure I mentioned, which is just, a, a, a intuitive complexity measure, just asking you how complicated something is. I think that was actually better uh, in some sense because yeah. even because you but, may read a very complicated sentence fast um, and know it's complicated and just not be able to know what it's about and just say okay and and, so, and then so that relationship isn't isn't great and you might be very very sensitive to how complicated it is and just not be able to understand it and and therefore read it so that but but anyway one of the measures is just sort of reading time that's a measure that people use to try to understand um, um, the sort of language complexity in some in some way reading time is an, an indirect measure i think of something like your intuitive complexity now when you go into the brain there are you know the the problem with i mean i can talk at length about this the the our understanding of how language is implemented in the brain is only now in the last 5 10 years um, being really kind of starting to be well understood and so we don't have um, the greatest measures right now of sort of complexity neural measures right now, in the, you know, but that's a, a lot of that's because there's this, yeah. you know, basically the brain's a black box in a way we're trying to figure, figuring out 
how language is implemented in the brain is, is has been a complicated research problem for the last you know, 100 years, 150 years, and really only in the last 10 years have we got a lot of headway there. And the, the problem there is in getting good neural signatures is that we don't have the best measures of what's going on in the human brain while it's happening. You know, the best measure of what's going on in a human brain while it's happening is, is functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is kind of terrible in some sense because it's what is it? It's measuring blood flow. It's measuring blood flow. And so it basically relies on the idea that, you know, when you think harder about something, blood goes there. Okay. So in that area of the brain. So if I start showing you a bunch of faces, for example, blood flows to the area of your brain, which processes faces. And so there's something called the fusiform face area. It's in the cortex where you process faces, especially over anything else, basically. And so, and the measure there um, is blood flow. And so there's increased blood flow to that area. Uh, over time, but that that takes two seconds or something, around two seconds before the for the blood to get to an area, and so there might be immediate neural stuff going on, but the blood doesn't get there for another two seconds, and so it's a very noisy measure of what's going on in the process that we're doing right now. Hmm. Me producing and you listening, I talk fast. I kind of know I talk fast. Just to, you know, there's, so there's a lot of stuff going on in my brain producing language. You know, within two seconds, there's so much stuff that happens, and there's so much stuff that's happening in your brain at, in, a, in that period as well. And so, uh, you know, language is tough, um, has been tough to, uh, you know, if, from that perspective, to use this measure, fMRI, because it's using this, you know, two second, it takes this two second window for, for the blood to get anywhere, to get to a useful place. And then there's all these complicated other reasons why in, in that our brains, my brain and your brain aren't the same. They're similar. Like they're about as similar. I, don't, I actually don't know what you look like. I don't know if you know what I look like, but my face is like many other human faces in that the orientation of my eyes is above my nose and it's above my, you know, those are above my mouth and so on. But the, the relative orientations of those things, how far apart they are, how far apart my eyes are, you know, how big my face is, where my eyes are relative to my forehead. These things are all different, right? And the ins, like mine will be different from yours. It'll be different from everyone else. And the insides of our heads are similar in that way, um, in that, that they're also individually different. And so, Finding out from this rough measure how uh, uh, you know how language is implemented, it turns out to be quite quite difficult because you know my you know how do we look inside? We can basically um, do some three D imaging and see inside my brain and see inside your brain with with uh, fMRI. But but deciding which parts are the areas that process language and which are the, in mine versus yours is actually a complicated problem. Uh, and and it turns out what we have to do is localize language in me first and localize language in you first and, and do figure out which network of regions is active when I'm listening or processing language and then look at that region and compare that to yours. And then, and that turns out to be, so that's been, that's why it's been a kind of a slow process is figuring all this out for, um, or in, the, in the last only 10 years, that stuff has been going on. Yeah, we'll take a we'll take a quick break, Ted. When we come back, uh, we'll talk okay. more about the evolution of languages. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast, providing unscripted conversations 
with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, uh, Ted, we were talking about human languages, how they are designed, uh, what the purpose is, um, and and really how they differ across the world as well. Um, one of the hypotheses that you have in the paper is about how the human language is designed from an efficiency perspective. And there are various parameters that you're exploring here. And, and one of them is word length. Um, and you talked a bit about this, um, Sif, uh, George Sif, um, who had a hypothesis uh, earlier on about this. Uh, do you want to elaborate a bit more on word length and, and uh, do we have sufficient information from, I know that you have done research in a few languages. Um, do they all point to sort of the same, same idea about word length? Yes, and so yeah, as I mentioned earlier, is this guy George Kingsley Zift? I like his middle name, Kingsley. He's a uh, um, was a linguist in the in at Harvard in the '40s, and he had proposed that um, frequency word frequency word length are correlated. I mean, it's a kind of an obvious idea, frankly. And the idea is it, it, to make it easier for you, the speaker, and for you, the listener, to hear less and say less to get the same amount of information across basically it's easy the idea is that i want to make words that are that i say all the time really short um and i don't want to and words that i hardly ever have to say they can be arbitrarily long or they can still be short but critically the ones that i say all the time should be short um and uh so he explored that in a few languages and but of course he, he was back in the 30s um, and in the 40s, and back then there weren't big corpora, big texts available from many languages. And so, um, uh, but even so, uh, when I, I had a, a student from a few years ago, a guy called Steve Pantadosi, he noticed that even so, there are lots of exceptions. I mean, there's going to be exceptions to the generalization that I tell you in a second, but there's still a lot of exceptions of very short words, which um, are... Uh, um, very infrequent. Okay. And so there it's kind of weird that you get these very infrequent short words, words like, um, uh, let me see, like yonder, for example, or, uh, a word like, uh, let me give another one here. Um, uh, a word like, uh, a back is a very yeah. short word. Um, and yet it's extremely low frequency. It hardly ever gets used um, in English. But what Steve noticed was that these words, even though they're very short, they occur in very predictable circumstances. Meaning a word like a back, it, it only basically gets used in a context immediately following uh, the verb take, to, take to, to be taken aback by something, basically. It's yeah. the only time that ever occurs, pretty much. And same with yonder, it only occurs basically after prepositions like over. I don't even know if it occurs after, I think there's some other environments, but there's hardly anything for either of them. And so the idea of, Steve's idea was like, look, you could have low frequency for, um, um, so you could have very short words because they're highly frequent, independent of context, or they could be very short if they are 
um, uh, frequent sort of predictable in the current context. And so what he did was look at, instead of just looking at frequency independent of context, let's look at frequency given the context. That's basically predictability. And so predictability, yeah. we just look at the, basically the, the probabilities or the, you know, the, uh, the, we just look at the log of the probability, the, which is the surprisal measure, the negative log probability of a word given its uh, previous context or, or following context, doesn't matter which direction we're looking at here, but, but let's say pre preceding context, look at the two words and then the third word, how well, um, how often that third word occurs in the context of all, uh, we'll see what the distribution of contexts are such that that word occurs. And it turns out that that negative log probability it's for a word like yonder and a word like um, uh, abac are, uh, they're, they're occur in extremely predictable context. Here, it's not the best measure of context. This is just a really simplistic measure of context, which is just take, taking strings of words that we can get from huge texts very easily. It's not the right way to measure context. I mean, whatever the right is, it's just a very simple measure of context, which is the preceding two words. And, and the reason we use that is that we can use um, texts that various companies, well, most most notably Google, have, have uh, uh, assembled. And so back in 2009, they released these corpora of engrams, which are just sequences of two, three, and four words across many, many languages. Um, I guess it was 11 languages at that time. We can yeah. look, and then we could look for um, this relationship, we could look for the relationship between the predictability of a word given the previous two words, for example, uh, and the, that, that predictability and correlate that with the length of the word. And it turns out there's a very strong relationship and it's a better relationship than just frequency independent of context. The, that word length frequency con um, um, uh, relationship is, is there, it's very, it's strong, but the, there's a much stronger relationship which is between the predictability of a word and the length, and so that, and that, that's true in all the languages that we looked at then, and all the languages that anyone's looked at since. So there does seem to be this generalization. So the Zipfian one is right. This George Zip one is right that word word length is related to word frequency. But it, but there's a better version of that, which is like, oh, it's not just predictability, you know, independent of context. It's actually predictability in context is driving that more more specifically. It's a better it's a better predictor of word length. And so, yeah, go ahead. So from a design perspective, what you're arguing is that languages have used these types of heuristics. It's not specific to one language, but you see it across languages. That's right. And you see it, I mean, we probably, you know, that's hard to explore in sort of language change as it's happening. Um, we kind of suspect it's happening in that, you know, when a word comes into a language, if a word gets used a lot, it tends to get shortened if it's being used a lot. So words like, you know, the original concept of you know, moving picture, turning into movie, turning into something short. Words like, you know, originally the, the word associated with, you know, an automobile, sorry, car was an automobile and that got shortened down to car and I'm not actually sure about the history. So when, when things come in, so I guess people talked about, a, you know, electronic mail originally and that got shortened to email. And there were like, whenever we use something in modern technology, if we use it a lot, then there's, there's a strong tendency, if, there's a, if it's being used a lot, um, to, to shorten, to want to shorten that, uh, those words. Um, and we can explore that in, like there are, 
sort of sort of um, a bunch of words out there uh, which are which mean the same thing and it still exists in the language. Things like math and mathematics kind of mean the same thing. Uh, there's a lot of these, not that many, but there's a, you know, around 50 of these words in English, which are sort of one's a short form of, of the other. And then we can look at the relationship of the usage of one of those words, of each of those words and the context in which they get used. And it turns out that a, a word like math gets used in a context where um, it's more predictable than a word like mathematics, where, it's, where basically the contexts are more unpredictable um, around a word like mathematics than a word like math. So there's other math-related words around the word math, typically, than, um, than for mathematics, where that will typically be brought in out of the yeah. blue in some sense. And so, so if I understand that correctly, Ted, the idea there is that if you have high predictability, there is lower risk of miscommunication yeah, right. by using sort of form, right? So you have another heuristic here, uh, the partitioning of semantic space. Uh, what exactly does that mean? Well, um, what, what, what I intended, what we intended there was we're talking about not only uh, form, Okay, so this is all. So, so the first part here is just about form, right? So it's like like yeah. when something gets used a lot, we like to make it easier for ourselves. We try to make things short. So that's a, like an easy way to make things so if we can say less. Now, there's a whole other question about efficiency of what exactly are we talking about in the world? And so that's what we're talking about semantic space. What are we talking about in the world, and how do we how do we invent? Um, names for things like why why are there words at all right so and there's there's different mm -hmm. kinds of ideas about why that might be and from the communication perspective of for why there are words um uh, it's because i want to communicate something to you i want to tell you something okay so there's a different so that that may seem like kind of obvious and maybe the only way you can think about it initially but but let's let's make it concrete and talk about a particular semantic space. And so one of which one is there's a, several of these that have been explored in some depth, but the one that's been explored most most depth around the world's languages is the domain of color and color language. It's what, what I mean yeah. by that is just the words that people have for uh, for different colors in, in a in a language. And so in English and in all industrialized culture languages, there will be at least 11 words that everyone knows. And those are, uh, you know, black, white, um, uh, let me go through them, uh, red, green, yellow, blue, brown, pink, orange, purple, and gray. Everyone will know those 11 words in English. And there's going to be some corresponding set of at least 11 terms in all industrialized cultures. Um, but very interestingly, in non-industrialized cultures, in cultures like hunter-gatherers or farmer-foragers, uh, there are many fewer words that the population will know. And so down to as few as two, as, as only having words for black and white, basically, but often only having yeah. you know three, four, or five terms, say black, white, and red, or some other combination, always black and white, at least black and white, and then always red is the third. But after that, it gets kind of noisy and uh, and <laughs> little, uh, confusing as to exactly what's going on there. And so the standard claim actually in the literature is not a communication one. The standard claim in the liter in the literature is having to do with something about the way that visual space works, the way that uh, the way that sight works for for color. 
such that when cultures are developing uh, in some sense, uh, they, for some reason, don't want to, the, the color words that they bring into the language are the ones that they can see uh, most easily is the idea. Uh, as, that's a very yeah. different idea than communication. The communication idea has to do with the, why do I invent a word for red, for the concept red, for example. Uh, or I, the reason I invent that word is that I have maybe two objects and they're identical except for that feature of color. And I want to tell you which one it is. It's the red one, not the black one, or the red one, not the green one, right? So I need to, so that's a that's the communication-based idea. And so then the idea, the reason then maybe that in non-industrialized cultures, they have fewer words for colors may have to do with the, kinds of objects that they typically interact with. And in industrialized cultures, it's very easy. I mean, it's very easy to see why we need words for colors in industrialized cultures, because we have, we, we make things. And if you know, I'm looking around my office right now, everything in my office, with the exception of myself and my dog, uh, are uh, industrialized things and are arbitrarily colored. We have dyes that can make anything, everything here, any color we want. And so, you know, if I have two shirts in the closet, they, I'm, you know, at some point I bought them at a store and I could have chose, I could have picked from a range of colors. I need words to tell me which one I want of those, of those um, objects. Now, if you go to a non-industrialized culture, so I, I work with a couple of um, uh, indigenous tribes in the Amazon, one in Bolivia, one in, uh, in, uh, Brazil, but the Bolivian one is the one I work with most on color. It's called the Chimani. You know, that group doesn't have lots of objects which are industrialized. They have hardly any. They have very, very few. I mean, they do have a few, but they mostly have stuff that they make on their own. All their, many of their tools are handmade. They make it themselves from their, from, from the materials that are available to them. And, uh, you know, their houses are all built by themselves, by the materials that are available in the local, um, local environment. The, the clothing is typically industrialized. It's mostly industrialized stuff, but it's stuff that they've just got one of each time. They didn't get choices of those things. And so this language um, has very few words for color. It does have black, white, and red, and it has some variability across the rest. And so we're so the idea here is try to figure out why cultures vary so much. The communication idea offers a, a potential reason as to why they might uh, might vary it's because they don't need to talk about color. They don't have multiple objects which are identical, and so they don't. Th th this word is just not very useful in that in that culture, and so they just it's not really invented. It's not something that they use. And so what we did, one of the things I did there was to look at, um, you know, why it is. We try to we're trying to understand why it is words uh, um, for colors look the way they do across the world's languages. And so we started, I mean, we were, we're not the first, there's a bunch of people who have done information theory kind of ways to, we just kind of used the stuff that was out there. <laughs> and a way to think about this is like, in information theory terms, we can talk about the number of bits of information it takes to convey a particular color. Okay, and, and, and the way you think about that, a way to think about that is say, I've got a bunch of colors um, that I'm selecting among. If you're you have normal vision, you can see literally millions of different colors. You can tell the difference between millions of different colors, um, and uh, and and so we don't have words for all of those, right? So we only have so maybe we have eleven words in English, 
but we probably, maybe you know a few more than 11, right? Most people know more than 11 words for, for, um, for colors in English, but maybe, maybe you know 20 or 30. Uh, it's still a tiny subset of what you can distinguish using your visual system. Um, and so let's select some smaller subset of colors to distinguish. And so what people have done who do research on color language is take some subset of uh, the most distinguishable colors that they that that can be um, seen in 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 any language just just be seen perceptually, and so there's like a, a subset a, a big set of language of colors that people have used. We we used a subset when I've done this work. We've used a subset of what they did. So they started with 330 of them, and we we cut that down to around 80 around 80. So just because it takes a very long time to run the tasks that that uh, that that you need to run. So. Basically, if you're asking, the, the task is to uh, take these 330 or, or, in our case, 84 colors and ask people to label each one of them, it's a hard task. It's a slow task among people that don't think of, don't talk about color very much. And so it takes a very long time to even do this for 84 that it, I mean, it takes maybe 45 minutes or an hour. It's not very exciting. I can't imagine how long it takes. I didn't run the 331 on this, on our group. This group is, um, the group that I work with is that the Chimani don't have, um, you know, it's it's kind of a low on the scale of information theoretic um, uh, language evolution for for color terms. Anyway, so we, we um, you can, you can, um, basically figure out how easy it is to convey a particular color from me to you, for example, by the uh, by an information theoretic term, which is basically the number of guesses, the number of bits it takes you to figure out which color I meant given the word that I used. Okay, so I'm, I'm allowed to use a word to do this, so maybe I choose some shade of, of green, and so I say green, and then, uh, I mean, that's what I'm kind of stuck with. <laughs> English or whatever, maybe I use some other more more complicated term, maybe I say olive or something. I, if I know a particular green I'm, I'm picking up here. Um, uh, and then the the way we decide information theoretically is how many bits it on average it might take to communicate will depend on how variable people are in labeling that particular color. That's like the probability of uh, a word given a color. And so if it's a word, if it's a particular color that people are very reliably labeled the same way all the time, then there's not that that's you know, that's good. That's easy. That's good for the information theory. But a lot of times, if things are on the boundary, uh, there's going to be some probability um, distribution shifted around, you know, among different um, terms for for that particular color. And 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 more critically, actually, on the other side, so you as the listener, when you hear a word which color do you think it is plays a big role in how easily it is to convey that color. So, so if I say green to you, and then we look at the color space and decide among that color space, which of those greens did I mean given I said that word, it turns out there's a lot of things in the color space that you, even in the 80, to 80, um, 80 sets of color that colors that we have, there's a bunch of them that it could have been. There's a bunch of things that an English speaker might've said were, are called green. Um, and so, so that makes it worse, you know, it makes it a little worse at conveying that color to you. It takes more bits to convey that. Now, if you compare that to actually red, for example, <laughs> red is like in a space in the English and in every language, it turns out, where it's more narrowly 
um, uh, defined. So there's fewer distractors of other things that would be called red um, in, in and around there. And, and we, we were defining the space, the color space, you know, purely perceptually. So we, we define the space in terms of what physical colors look similar to one another. And it turns out that there are fewer things around that are that everyone would agree call calling red, even though, though we can distinguish them. There are fewer of them relative to the things, the ones that we would call green or blue, for example. There's many, many more things that we were called green or blue, uh, um, which we can perceptually distinguish. So the the space, the color space around green and blue is much bigger than around red. And that's that's what we ended up observing across every language. Turns out that every single language puts more words in the so-called warm part of the color space, the red, orange, yellow, brown, pink part. You know, there's a bunch of words there in English yeah. where we put in the, in the warm space and in the cool space, blue and green, there's like two words. It's kind of the same size of what, of what we can distinguish perceptually. And yet there's many, many fewer words there. And so that's like the way that languages put words in the color space turns out to be very asymmetric um, and putting may, way more words in the in the warm than the than the cool, and then we figured out that oh, that's maybe due to the things that we want to talk about, and those are objects. We want to talk about people. We want to talk about animals. We want to talk about berries. You know, originally, you know, things, you know, fruits and berries. These things tend to be warm colored and not cool colored. And in in the way we can easily most easily see that is that cool colored. What does that even mean? That means the sky. That means you know the blue sky, the water the trees, the grass, all this green stuff. This is stuff we don't really want to talk about. This is, this is um, background for our, uh, for our objects. Objects tend to be warm colored relative to cool colored backgrounds. And in fact, this is the first actually technical definition of what it even means for something to be warm or cool colored. This is like objects are warm colored and backgrounds are cool colored. And we can measure that um, using databases of objects against backgrounds. And we can see that there's a very strong relationship uh, between what's an object and whether it's so-called warm colored or cool colored. Uh, and, and that tr happens to be true. And so we, we measured this in a few languages ourselves, but there was this giant database of 110 languages, which um, doing this world color survey, um, which yeah. these guys, um, uh, Brent Berlin and Paul Kay, collected back in the 90s. And it's available at Berkeley on the Berkeley website. It has uh, data from around 30 speakers from each of 100 and 110 languages, each one of which is a non-industrialized language from every part of the world. Uh, and there's the same relationship in every single one of them, such that warm colors are easier to convey than cool colors. So that's a, a true linguistic universal that warm colors are easier to convey than cool colors. And we think that's probably due to people developing these languages to talk about objects and not talk about, they don't want to talk about the background. So, so this is another sort of universal heuristic that you find that warm colors, um, you, you communicate with fewer bits. It's more clear, it's more easily communicated. And the hypothesis is that that is what people people generally use because they're talking about objects, not about backgrounds, and the cool colors tend to be in the background. Um, so that's another interesting, so, so this again provides additional 
um, additional uh, force toward, you know, there is a design template that all languages seem to be using and they tend to be universal. There, there's a third one here, uh, syntax. Now, syntax is a general term for how, how sentences are put together, right? And there again, we find some um, very interesting similarities across languages. Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, these are like, we basically explore any areas of sort of meaning, language meaning, where we can we can look for similarities and differences. And so um, in, in this, so, so each of the first two cases, these are like form form of the words and now the meanings of the words. That's the, you know, the color example. Uh, and then this third case is like compositionality of how the words get put together in their so-called syntax um, across languages. And here, um, I mean, we were just kind of exploring, again, each one of these cases, we are basically exploring ways in which uh, languages might be similar or different. It's a kind of a, you know, we're just taking a kind of computer science information theoretic, um, really computer science generally approach to studying human language. And so that is basically taking big databases of language, whatever forms, wh however that's been uh, processed and try to look for generalizations there. And so in the form of syntax, what we did was take the depend so-called dependency structures um, from many, many languages. And so here what, what's happened is there's something called uh, the universal dependency tree bank or, or corpora, uh, which a bunch of researchers in um, language, language researchers, computer scientists who want to do things like automatic translation from one language to another. And they've gone and so-called parsed, you know, basically structured by hand many sentences from many, many languages. And so we had access to 37 languages originally. And so what this means is, so you take a sentence, like any sentence in any language, I'll just, we're working in English here. I'll say, you know, the, I was talking about the cat earlier. So the cat chases the mouse is a very simple sentence in English. And there's a dependency structure in that very simple sentence such that the depends on cat. And the cat, that whole noun phrase depends on chases for its meaning, basically the cat is the agent here of chasing. Um, and, and the same thing on the uh, on for the so-called object here, the, the mouse, the goes to mouse and mouse is dependent on uh, chase again. And there's some, maybe, and, and there's like discussions and arguments in the literature about uh, what the phrase structure, if there's a phrase structure associated with that sentence is, but I'm just, the dependency structure is those words, like you basically throw or through there is what the sentence is about in some sense is like that's what it's a throwing event and the agent of that is the cat and the, the patient of that is the mouse and there's, so there's, there's some relationship there such that you know cat depends on through and mouse depends on through and the two does depend on each of their heads there that's the dependency structure and it you know you basically we're doing that for when you're listening to me you are computing a dependency structure <laughs> you know implicitly in your head for all the sentences that I'm saying, and we can do that. It's actually pretty easy to figure out the dependency structure for any sentence in English. There are some cases which are a little bit difficult, but in any, in any language, actually, it's not too hard to figure out a formalism for figuring out, you know, which, which things depend on which. It's like pretty much figuring out what the, 
the predicate arguments meaning of a sentence is, and you can do that pretty easily, uh, you know, in a language. And well, these people have done that for hmm. like gone through a big corpus of English, a big corpus of 36 other languages that um, which which they um, measured here. So you know, from you know Danish to Dutch to Greek, modern Greek uh, uh, and ancient Greek, actually Spanish, Swedish. Tamil, you know, lots of languages here have, have been, uh, were explored in their original data set that we were looking at across, I think, 10 different families. But so most of them are Indo-European languages because that's mostly what's available. Um, uh, you know, people want to want to translate, for example, but there's a, a nine other families that were represented here. And we were, we were interested in um, some generalizations in these in, in how these structure, how these languages look, and the thing we were, one of the things we were looking at was whether the dependencies between words were, were tended to be relatively close to one another. There's a, there's an observation in the psychology of language literature such that um, dependency structures that are kind of close together tend to be easy to be easier to be processed. So, um, you know, I, I, I there's I. And an example, which I use as a joke, as a way, is, a, is like, here's an example in uh, of a translation of a sign that was in a, a, a on a Russian cemetery. It says, "You can visit the, the cemetery where famous Russian composers are buried daily, except Thursday." That was a sign that was on this uh, uh, on this burial area. And the idea here is, it, is that when you hear or read. Uh, buried daily except Thursday, you think, oh, daily except Thursday probably goes locally with buried. And that that doesn't, that's crazy. The intention here, of course, is the visiting. Yeah. You can visit the cemetery, could be taking place daily except Thursday. So you could reword that. So, you know, you know, you can visit daily except Thursday, the cemetery, something like that. You could do that. You visit the cemetery, you know, daily except Thursday where Russian composers are buried. You could have reworded that in a way such that there wasn't this temporary ambiguity. I mean, these were non-English speakers translating this. And so when you read this in English, it just sounds silly. Um, it sounds funny. And, and that's probably because when we read or when we, we process language, we tend to have a locality bias. We like to put words, we like to connect things together to the more local thing and the, the less local thing. And so that was what we were kind of looking for in the world's languages, do languages, not just in ambiguity situations like that, but in their structures overall, independent of ambiguity, tend to like local structures over non-local structures. And so what we did there to, to, to test that idea was take, say each sentence, take a sentence from English, just as an example, this is gonna be true in every language. So I took the cat uh, chases the mouse again, okay? And that's got chase as its head for the whole sentence there. Um, and then what, what this was a project led by a guy called Richard Futrell, who was a student in my lab, and now he's a professor down in University of California in Irvine. And so what he did was take um, the head of each sentence, so in that case would be chases, and chases there has two dependents. It has cat and mouse as its dependents. So there's like a, a ternary structure there at the top of that tree, of that phrase structure. And what he does, did was like, let's just scramble that in some random order. And so this is, this is how English happens to phrase that meaning. Let's see how some other language, a random other language, you might randomly order these things, might do that. And do that, um, so to take some random order of those three uh, elements, 
and and then do that scrambling yeah. all the way down this dependency structure. So then do it for the cat and the mouse. There's only three things to do in this very simple sentence. And you just go all the way down the tree and then you would do that a hundred times for every sentence in each language. And then look at the dependency distances between the words um, for the ones that actually occurred in the real languages and compare them to these baselines, which are kind of like some other way that this might've happened in some random language conveying the same meaning. And what it found was that every single language, oh, and then it, it was further constrained, actually a little bit more constrained than that, so that you, you disallow crossed dependencies in your random structures. You don't allow, it turns out if you allow cross dependencies, then things get really, dependencies get really long, really fast in for longer sentences. So, so that's, um, <laughs> he's actually constrained it. That's, uh, um, you know, th th there's a hypothesis out there that maybe the reason that languages disallow cross dependencies is in fact to maybe keep dependencies local. That's like due to a guy called, um, Ramon Ferreri Concho is a Spanish information theorist working on language. And so he guesses that maybe the reason that languages don't allow cross dependencies for the most part is because they're trying to keep dependencies close. We, we were looking at even like, let's assume he's right, um, that, that we don't allow cross dependencies. Yeah. Even so, dependencies in every language are closer together than we, we would expect um, compared to this random baseline. They're, they're not quite at the optimal level, so they're not down to the absolute optimal, and that's because there are rules. There are grammatical rules within every language, and we need to follow those. Presumably those rules um, uh, are there to make language easier to learn. <laughs> so there's some trade-off here between learnability, making things general and easy to learn, and uh, keeping dependencies uh, close together. There's some trade-off here. But um, but there's but in, but all languages are below that that baseline and and so this this is true for example for for not just for these cases of ambiguity where you choose a local connection over a non-local but it's also like so there there are these neat generalizations across languages such that if a language happens to be um, you know verb initial. English isn't verb initial, but it's right after, it's only after the subject, the, the agents come first, and then it comes, and everything else comes after the verb after that. If, if it's like that, then you also yeah. have so-called prepositions, these words that come before their noun. So I say, I, you know, I gave a book to Mary. I don't say I gave a book Mary to. I, the, the two comes before Mary, not after, as a, as a preposition. And English also has the, there's something called these uh, subordinate clause markers. These are words like that. I think that, you know, Mary is brilliant or something. So, so the word that is marking uh, a clause which is subordinate to the main clause, which is, you know, a, a lower clause. And that comes before the subordinate clause, not after it. The, the, the reason I'm bringing these up is that in languages which are so-called verb final, so a language like uh, Japanese or Korean or Turkish, these languages have um, uh, they're verb final, so that the verbs come at the end of everything. You have um, uh, post positions. You don't say I I I gave a book to Mary. You say I gave a book Mary to. Actually, it's like I book Mary to gave. Okay, gave comes at the end, right? And, and it's Mary to. There's a marker at the end of that, not at the beginning. And in these verb final languages, you also have. The, 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 um, the subordinate clause marker comes after. And it turns out that having that um, systematic um, order 
such that you have prepositions with verb, verb before and you have postpositions with verb after, that minimizes dependency lengths. And that's what you see across languages is these, these neat correlations between type, the ways that structures are and, um, and, um, and, um, and their dependency lengths. Yeah, so, so, so you say, uh, so there are three most common orders, uh, mm -hmm. subject, verb, object. Yeah. So that is SVO. Um, that is English, right? Um, there is SOV and there is VSO. Uh, either one of those would be sort of difficult, I would imagine, uh, for an English uh, speaker. Um, but it's interesting that you say that if, if, you, if you were to do pure optimization on, on distances, um, there is some trade-off to learnability. And so it's, it, is it true that languages uh, sort of trading off learnability to, uh, to, to pure optimization? Uh, we, we don't know that. And, and so um, this is like, you yeah. know, your, these, these examples I've given you, you know, we're going through, um, in your podcast, you were going through some of the examples of ways in which we think language looks like it's uh, built for communication or for ease of transmission in some sense, right? But um, the there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, so these are like sort of test cases which show that there's a there is a there is a relationship between uh, sort of some some levels of simplicity in language structure. Uh, but there's like a lot of work that needs to be done to figure out you know because because there's a lot of um, uh, Things that haven't been figured out there. So, what is the relationship between learnability and and communication? These things are very different, right? They're, they're very, very, really very different pressures on a system. The ease of very different from the ease of something to communicate. These are like go, going on actually kind of in the opposite direction in many cases. And so, you know, figuring out how those things work together is is a you know a promising note in this kind of at this point. In, in, in the state of research and at this point in, uh, in in research on this field. And so, yes, there's a, there's, you know, all I can, we can point out that there's, um, uh, there's just these, you know, there, the fact that um, we're not at the baseline means it's not optimized, like perfectly optimized for dependency length minimization, right? Uh, um, at all, it isn't. Uh, and then why isn't it at the baseline? Well, that's probably because of regular regularities that we that are probably easier to learn, but then those details have to be spelled out in some in models and figure out what exactly those are. Uh, and then you were asking questions about you know, these three, it's true there are, so a, if you took things like, we take sort of the most basic types of events that we might want to, Transmit as subjects, verbs, and objects. I, I don't think that's really true, and so, but that, but that has been a hypothesis. Like, so I'm not the one that started that, and this this has been going on in, ling in the field of linguistics for a long time. People talk about basic word order among things like the cat chases the mouse. Okay, where <laughs> you've got a cat, which is an agent, some uh, of of some event, which is a chasing event, and there's a patient. You know, it's not like that's the most, I mean, the implicit claim for us is, is that something, some, that may be the most common kind of event or something, and we want, might want to know how that event is structured in any language. In fact, it's like a lot of different kinds of events 
which don't really fit that framework in some ways. But so that's how it's been framed. People in the history of studying language have started looking at just orders of subjects, verbs, and objects. And it's true. There's a, an observation is that the subjects tend to occur, occur before objects. Um, and so that's why you get these three word orders, which are super common. S, V, O, so that's S is before O. S, O, V, S is uh, again before O. And uh, V, S, O. And so S is again before O. You don't, the other three, which are logically possible scramblings of those things are, are just relatively rarer. So V, O, S, um, yeah. O, V, S, and O, S, V are all very rare in the world's languages. And some of them have been argued not to exist at all. But I think V, O, S is a real thing, for example. Um, but I'm not sure about the other two. The other two might be, uh, I mean, I, I've been told that O, OVS is a real thing also, uh, but I'm not sure about OSV, for instance. So OSV may just be a variant of, really is, may just be um, SOV. Um, and so, I mean, this is just, you know, discussions. The difficulty in knowing this is like the most common languages in the world aren't any of those. <laughs> and so there's not very many speakers. I mean, it's not true about VOS. So VOS, like Malagasy, I think, is a VOS language, and there's like a couple million speakers of this language. And so it's like, okay, there are examples of common word languages, like languages which we can get a lot of access to a lot of speakers of uh, who who speak at least a VOS language. The others are just happen to be languages um, for which there's just not a lot of speakers who we can get easy access to. And so they may or may not be real. They may not be. Uh, and so that, now your question is, <laughs> I mean, what you the question is like, um, there's like interesting observations that first of all, like why why is S before O such a common generalization? And that's a that, that's an old observation due to Joseph Greenberg and others maybe before him. In fact, he's a famous typologist from like language person who studied a lot of different languages. Who was at Stanford in the I guess 50s, 60s, 70s, and um, you know his observation. I guess the the hypothesis there has to do with the uh, um, the reason that subjects, which are the agents, come before objects is probably about the speaker. Like these are all these are all you know human you know languages, and we want to talk about ourselves. We want to talk about the agent of something is more important in an event than the objects, the things that are happening to them. That's right. what what is a subject is typically an agent, and those are that's that's me. I'm doing something, and I want to tell you what I'm doing, or I want to know what the what are the animals doing or something as opposed to how it's being affected you know what what's happening to you know what am i doing i'm kicking the ball or something the ball is less important to me than the person who's doing the kicking and so that's maybe why those things come first in uh, across the world's languages mostly but i mean then you know it's not always true and so that's like at least there are these vos examples which are exceptions and i you know the understanding the range of exceptions is going to be important uh, also, to understanding the you know the what's really going on here, but we you know I, I, we we don't know that at this point. Excellent, excellent. This has been great. <laughs> been, uh, thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. me. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.